Chapter Thirteen, Part Three of How I Found Livingston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Anton Epp. How I Found Livingston. Travels, adventures, and discoveries in Central Africa, including four months' residence with Dr. Livingston, by Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter Thirteen, Part Three: Our Cruise on the Lake Tanganyika exploration of the north end of the lake, the Rusizi is discovered to enter into the lake, return to Ujiji. The Rusizi River, according to Ruhinga, rose near a lake called Kivo, which he said is as long as from Mugahawa to Mugiri, and as broad as from Mugahewa to Warumashanya's country, or, say, eighteen miles in length by about eight in breadth. The lake is surrounded by mountains on the western and northern sides. On the southwestern side of one of these mountains issues the Rusizi. At first a small rapid stream, but as it proceeds towards the lake, it receives the rivers Kagunisi, Kaburan, Mohira, Nyamagana, Nyakagunda, Ruviro, Rofubu, Kavamvira, Moyov, Ruhuha, Mukindu, Sanga, Rubirizi, Kiriba, and, lastly, the Rwanda River, which seems to be the largest of them all. Kivo Lake is so called from the country in which it is situated. On one side is Mutumbi, probably the Utubi of Speck and Baker. On the west side is Rwanda. On the east is Urundi. The name of the chief of Kivo is Kwansibura. After so many minute details about the river Rusizi, it only remained for us to see it. On the second morning of our arrival at Mugahewa, we mustered ten strong paddlers and set out to explore the head of the lake and the mouth of the Rusizi. We found that the northern head of the lake was indented with seven broad bays, each from one and a half to three miles broad, that long broad spits of sand, overgrown with mateta, separated each bay from the other. The first, starting from west to east, at the broadest part, to the extreme southern point of Mugahewa, was about three miles broad and served as a line of demarcation between Mukamba's district of Ruwenga and Mugahewa of Ruhinga. It was also two miles deep. The second bay was a mile from the southern extremity of Mugahewa to Ruhinga's village at the head of the bay, and it was a mile across to another spit of sand which was terminated by a small island. The third bay stretched for nearly a mile to a long spit, at the end of which was another island, one and a quarter miles in length and was the western side of the fourth bay, at the head of which was the delta of the Rusizi. This fourth bay, at its base, was about three miles in depth, and penetrated half a mile further inland than any other. Soundings indicated six feet deep, and the same depth was kept to within a few hundred yards of the principal mouth of the Rusizi. The current was very sluggish, not more than a mile an hour. Though we constantly kept our binoculars searching for the river, we could not see the main channel until within two hundred yards of it, and then only by watching what outlet the fishing canoes came out. The bay at this point had narrowed from two miles to about two hundred yards in breadth. Inviting a canoe to show us the way, a small flotilla of canoes preceded us from the sheer curiosity of the owners. We followed, and in a few minutes were ascending the stream, which was very rapid, though but about ten yards wide and very shallow not more than two feet deep. We ascended about half a mile, the current being very strong, from six to eight miles an hour, and quite far enough to observe the nature of the stream at its embouchure. We could see that it widened and spread out in a myriad of channels, 
rushing by isolated clumps of sedge and matete grass, and that it had the appearance of a swamp. We had ascended the central or main channel. The western channel was about eight yards broad. We observed, after we had returned to the bay, that the easternmost channel was about six yards broad and about ten feet deep, but very sluggish. We had thus examined each of its three mouths, and settled all doubts as to the Rusizi being effluent or influent. It was not necessary to ascend higher, there being nothing about the river itself, to repay exploration of it. The question, was the Rusizi an effluent or an influent, was answered for ever. There was now no doubt any more on that point. In size it was not to be compared with the Malagarazi River, neither is it, or can it be, navigable for anything but the smallest canoes. The only thing remarkable about it is that it abounds in crocodiles, but not one hippopotamus was seen, which may be taken as another evidence of its shallowness. The bays to the east of the Rusizi are of the same conformation as those on the west. Carefully judging from the width of the several bays from point to point, and of the several spits which separate them, the breadth of the lake may be said to be about twelve to fourteen miles. Had we contented ourselves with simply looking at the conformation and the meaning of the eastern and western ranges, we should have said that the lake ended in a point, as Captain Specker had sketched it on his map. But its exploration dissolved that idea. Chamanti Hill is the extreme northern termination of the western range, and seems, upon a superficial examination, to abut against the Ramata Mountains of the eastern range, which are opposite Chamati. But a valley about a mile in breadth separates the two rivers, and through this valley the Rusizi flows towards the lake. Note, after the patient investigation of the north end of the lake, and satisfying ourselves by personal observation that the Rusizi ran into the lake, the native rumor which Sir Samuel Baker brought home that the Tanganyika and the Albert and Yanza have a water connection still finds many believers. End note. Though Chamati terminates the western range, the eastern range continues for miles beyond, northwesterly. After its issue from this broad gorge, the Rusizi runs seemingly in a broad and mighty stream, through a wide alluvial plain, its own formation in a hundred channels until, approaching the lake, it flows into it by three channels only, as above described. I should not omit to state here that though the doctor and I have had to contend against the strong current of the Rusizi River as it flowed swift and strong into the Tanganyika, the doctor still adheres to the conviction that, whatever part the Rusizi plays, there must be an outlet to the Tanganyika somewhere, from the fact that all freshwater lakes have outlets. The doctor is able to state his opinions and reasons far better than I can find for him, and, lest I misconstrue the subject, I shall leave it until he has an opportunity to explain them himself, which his great knowledge of Africa will enable him to do with advantage. One thing is evident to me, and I believe to the doctor, that Sir Samuel Baker will have to curtail the Albert and Yanza by one, if not two degrees of latitude. That well-known traveller has drawn his lake far into the territory of the Warundi, while Rwanda has been placed on the eastern side, whereas a large portion of it, if not all, should be placed north of what he has designated on his map as Usigi. The information of such an intelligent man as Rohingya is not to be despised, for if Lake Albert came within a hundred miles of the Tanganyika, he would surely have heard of its existence, even if he had not seen it himself. Originally he came from Mutubi, and he has travelled from that country into Mugahewa, the district he now governs. 
he has seen Mwezi, the great king of Urundi, and describes him as a man about forty years old, and as a very good man. Our work was now done. There was nothing more to detain us at Mugahewa. Ruhinga had been exceedingly kind, and given us one ox after another to butcher and eat. Makamba had done the same. Their woman had supplied us with an abundance of milk and butter, and we had now bounteous supplies of both. The doctor had taken a series of observations for latitude and longitude, and Mugahewa was made out to be in three degrees nineteen minutes south latitude. On the 7th December, early in the morning, we left Mugahewa, and rowing past the southern extremity of the Katangara Islands, we approached the highlands of Uashi, near the boundary line between Makamba's country and Uvira. The boundary line is supposed to be a wide ravine, in the depths of which is a grove of tall, beautiful, and straight-stemmed trees, out of which the natives make their canoes. Passing Kanyama-Bengu River, which issues into the lake close to the market ground of Kirabula, the extreme point of Burton and Speck's explorations of the Tanganyika, we steered south along the western shore of the lake for half an hour longer to Kavimba, where we halted to cook breakfast. The village where lived Mruta, the king of Uvira, was in sight of our encampment, and as we observed parties of men ascending and descending the mountains, which much more often than we thought augured good to ourselves, we determined to continue on our course south. Besides, there was a party of disconsolate-looking Wajiji here, who had been plundered only a few days before our arrival, for attempting, as the Wavira believed, to evade the Honga payment. Such facts as these, and our knowledge of the general state of insecurity in the country, the resulting from the many wars in which the districts of the Tanganyika were engaged, determined us not to halt at Kavimba. We embarked quickly in our boat before the Wavira had collected themselves, and headed south against a strong gale, which came driving down on us from the southwest. After a hard pull of about two hours in the teeth of the storm, which was rapidly rising, we pointed the head of the boat into a little quiet cove, almost hidden in tall reeds, and disembarked for the night. Cognizant of the dangers which surrounded us, knowing that savage and implacable man was the worst enemy we had to fear, we employed our utmost energies in the construction of a stout fence of thorn bushes, and then sat down to supper after our work was done, and turned in to sleep, but not before we had posted watchmen to guard our canoe, lest the daring thieves of Uvira might abstract it, in which case we should have been in a pretty plight, and in most unenviable distress. At daybreak, leaving Kukumba Point after our humble breakfast of coffee, cheese, and dura cakes was dispatched, we steered south once more. Our fires had attracted the notice of the sharp-eyed and suspicious fishermen of Kukumba, but our precautions and the vigilant watch we had set before retiring had proved an effectual safeguard against the Kavira thieves. The western shores of the lake, as we proceeded, were loftier and more bold than the wooded heights of Urundi and the bearded knolls of Ujiji. A black ridge, the vanguard of the mountains which rise beyond, disclosed itself between the serrated tops of the front line of the mountains, which rose to a height of from 2,500 to 3,000 feet above the lake. Within the folds of the front line of mountains rise isolated hills of considerable magnitude, precipitous and abrupt, but scenically very picturesque. The greater part of these hills have the rounded and smooth top, or are tabularly summited. The ridge enfolding these hills shoots out, at intervals, promontorial projections of gradual sloping outlines, which on the map I have designated capes or points. When rounding these points, up went our compasses for the taking of bearings, 
and observing the directions of all prominent objects of interest. Often these capes are formed by the alluvial plains, through which we may be sure a river will be found flowing. These pretty alluvial plains, enfolded on the south, the west, and the north, by a grand mountain arc, presented the most luxurious and enchanting scenery. The vegetation seems to be of spontaneous growth. Groups of Deleus guinensis palm embowering some dun-brown village, an array of majestic, superb growth of imbuli trees, a broad extent covered with vivid green sorghum stalks, parachute-like tops of mimosa, the line of white sand on which native canoes are drawn far above the reach of the plagiant, uneasy surf, fishermen idly reeling in the shade of the tree. These are the scenes which reveal themselves to us as we voyage in our canoes on the Tanganyika. When wearied with the romance of wild tropic scenes such as these, we have but to lift our eyes to the great mountain tops looming darkly and grandly on our right, to watch the light pencilling of the cirrus brushing their summits as it drifted toward the north by the rising wind, to watch the changing forms which the clouds assume, from the fleecy horizontal bars of the cirrus to the denser, gloomier cumulus, prognosticator of storm and rain, which soon settles into a portentous group, alps above alps, one above the other, and we know the storm which was brewing is at hand, and that it is time to seek shelter. Passing Wikwamba, we saw several groves of the tall Mvuli tree. As far as Bemba and Wabembe occupy the mountain summits, while the Wavira cultivate the alluvial plains along the base and lower slopes of the mountains. At Bemba we halted to take in pieces of pipe clay, in accordance with the superstition of the Wajiji, who thought us certain of safe passage and good fortune if we complied with the ancient custom. Passing in Guvi, we came to a deep bend, which curved off to Cape Kabogi at the distance of ten miles. About two-thirds of the way we arrived at a group of islets, three in number, all very steep and rocky, the largest about three hundred feet in length at the base, and about two hundred feet in breadth. Here we made preparations to halt for the night. The inhabitants of the islands were a gorgeously feathered old cock, which was kept as a propitiatory offering to the spirit of the island, a sickly yellow-looking thrush, a hammer-headed stork, and two fish-hawks, who, finding we had taken possession of what had been religiously reserved for them, took flight to the most western island, where from their perches they continued to eye us most solemnly. As these islands were with difficulty pronounced by us as Kuvanyave, the doctor, seeing that they were the only objects we were likely to discover, named them the New York Herald Islets, and, in confirmation of the new designation given them, shook hands with me upon it. Careful dead reckoning settled them to be in latitude three degrees, forty-one minutes south. The summit of the largest island was well adapted to take bearings, and we improved the opportunity, as most extensive views of the broad and lengthy lake and surrounding lines of imposing mountains were attainable. The Ramata hills were clearly visible, and bore north-north-east from it. Kataganga Cape, south-east by south. Sintakiyi, east-south-east. Magala, east by north. Southwestern point of Muzumi bore south. Northern point of Muzubi Island, south-southeast. At dawn on the ninth December, we prepared to resume our voyage. Once or twice in the night, we had been visited by fishermen, but our anxious watchfulness prevented any marauding. It seemed to me, however, that the people of the opposite shore, who were our visitors, were eagerly watching any opportunity to pounce on our canoe, or take us boldly for a prey and our men were considerably affected by these thoughts. 
if we may judge from the hearty good will with which they rode away from our late encampment. Arriving at Cape Kabogi, we came to the territory of the Wasansi. We knew we were abreast of a different tribe by the greeting Moholo, which a group of fishermen gave us, as that of the Waviro was wake, like that of Urundi, Usige, and Uha. We soon sighted Cape Luvumba, a sloping projection of a mountain ridge which shot far into the lake. As a storm was brewing, we steered for a snug little cove that appeared before a village, and, drawing our canoe from the water, began to set the tent, and make other preparations for passing the night. As the natives appeared quiet and civil enough, we saw no reason to suspect that they entertained any hostility to Arabs and Wawanga. Accordingly, we had our breakfast cooked, and as usual laid down for an afternoon nap. I soon fell asleep, and was dreaming away in my tent, in happy oblivion of the strife and contention that had risen since I had gone to sleep, when I heard a voice hailing me with, "'Master! Master! Get up! Quick! Here is a fight going to begin!' I sprang up, and snatching my revolver belt from the gun-stand, walked outside. Surely there appeared to be considerable amias between the several factions, between a noisy, vindictive-looking set of natives of the one part, and our people of the other part. Seven or eight of our people had taken refuge behind the canoe, and had their loaded guns half-pointing at the passionate mob, which was momentarily increasing in numbers. But I could not see the doctor anywhere. "'Where is the doctor?' I asked. "'He has gone over the hill, sir, with his compass,' said Selim. "'Anybody with him?' "'Susi and Chuma.' "'You, Bombay, send two men off to warn the doctor, and tell him to hurry up here.' But just at this period the doctor and his two men appeared on the brow of the hill, looking down in a most complacent manner upon the serio-comic scene that the little basin wherein we were encamped presented. For, indeed, despite the serious aspect of it, there was much that was comical blended with it, in a naked young man who, perfectly drunk, barely able to stand on his feet, was beating the ground with his only loin-cloth, screaming and storming away like a madman declaring by this and by that, in his own choice language, that no Mugwana or Arab should halt one moment on the sacred soil of Usansi. His father, the Sultan, was as inebriated as himself, though not quite so violent in his behaviour. In the meantime the doctor arrived upon the scene, and Selim had slipped my Winchester rifle, with the magazine full of cartridges, into my hand. The doctor calmly asked what was the matter, and was answered by the Wajiji guides, that the people wished us to leave, as they were on hostile terms with the Arabs, because the eldest son of the Sultan of Muzumi, the large island nearly opposite, had been beaten to death by a Baluch named Kamis Adujiji, because the young fellow had dared to look into his harem, and ever since peace had been broken between the Wasansi and Arabs. After consulting with the guides, the doctor and I came to the conclusion that it were better that we should endeavour to pacify the Sultan by a present, rather than to take offence at a drunken boy's extravagant freak. In his insane fury he had attempted to slash at one of my men with a bill-hook he carried. This had been taken as a declaration of hostilities, and the soldiers were ready enough to engage in war. But there was no necessity to commence fighting with a drunken mob, who could have been cleared off the ground with our revolvers alone had we desired it. The doctor, bearing his arm, said to them that he was not Mugwana, or an Arab, but a white man, that Arabs and Wagawana had no such colour as we had. We were white men, different people altogether from those whom they were accustomed to see, that no black men had ever suffered injury from white men. 
This seemed to produce great effect, for after little gentle persuasion, the drunken youth, with his no less inebriate sire, were induced to sit down and talk quietly. They frequently referred to Mombo, the son of Kasisa, Sultan of Mizumi, who was brutally murdered. Yes, brutally murdered, they exclaimed several times in their own tongue, illustrating by a faithful pantomime how the unfortunate youth had died. Livingston continued talking with them in a mild, paternal way, and the loud protestations against Arab cruelty were about to subside when the old sultan suddenly rose up and began to pace about in an excited manner, and in one of his preambulations deliberately slashed his leg with the sharp blade of his spears, and then exclaimed that the wagwana had wounded him. At this cry one half of the mob hastily took to flight, but one old woman who carried a strong staff with a carved lizard's body on its top commenced to abuse the chief with all the power of her voluble tongue charging him with a desire to have them all killed, and another woman joined in with her in advising him to be quiet and accept the present we were willing to give. But it is evident that there was little need to cause all men present in that little hollow to begin a most sanguinary strife. The gentle, patient bearing of the doctor had more effect than anything else in making all forbear bloodshed while there was left the least chance of an amicable settlement, and in the end it prevailed. The sultan and his son were both sent on their way, rejoicing. While the doctor conversed with them and endeavoured to calm their fierce passions, I had the tent struck and the canoes launched, and the baggage stowed, and when the negotiations had concluded amicably, I begged the doctor to jump into the boat, as this apparent peace was simply a lull before a storm. Besides, said I, there are two or three cowardly creatures in the boat who, in case of another disturbance, would not scruple to leave both of us here. From Cape Lumbamba, about 4.30 p.m., we commenced pulling across. At 8 p.m., we were abreast of Cape Panza, the northern extremity of the island of Muzimu. At 6 a.m., we were southward of Bikari, and pulling for Mukungu, in Urundi, at which place we arrived at 10 a.m. Having been 17 hours and a half in crossing the lake, which, computing at 2 miles an hour, may be said to be 35 miles direct breadth, and a little more than forty-three miles from Cape Luvumba. On the 11th of December, after seven hours pulling, we arrived at the picturesque Zasi again, on the 12th at the pretty Cape of Nisanga, and at 11 a.m. we had rounded past Bangwe, and Ujiji was before us. We entered the port very quietly, without the usual firing of guns, as we were short of powder and ball. As we landed, our soldiers and the Arab magnates came to the water's edge to greet us. Mabruki had a rich budget to relate to us of what had occurred during our absence. This faithful man, left behind in charge of Livingston's house, had done most excellently. Kalulu had scalded himself, and had a frightful raw sore on his chest in consequence. Mabruki had locked up Marora in chains for wounding one of the asses. Bilali, the stuttering coward, a bully of woman, had caused a tumult in the marketplace, and had been sharply belaboured with the stick by Mabruki and above all most welcome was a letter i received from the american council of zanzibar dated june eleventh containing telegrams from paris as late as april twenty second of the same year poor livingston exclaimed and i have none what a pleasant thing it is to have a real and good friend our voyage on the tanganyika had lasted twenty-eight days during which time we had traversed over three hundred miles of water end of chapter thirteen part three